0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research podcast. The following episode is taken from our Think and Drink series of talks, which are informal conversations by humanities faculty, researchers, and practitioners on a range of topics. Please subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook for notifications on future events.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research Think and Drink series of virtual talks. Uh, We hope you are all as well and healthy as any of us can possibly be given the truly crazy world in which we live at the moment. Uh, I'm Scott Hinkle. I'm the Director of the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research and I'm so happy to welcome you to tonight's Think and Drink, the topic of which is Pandemics in Historical Perspective. So I'm so happy to introduce Dr. Melissa Morris who is Assistant Professor of History and American Studies here at the University of Wyoming and a member of the Humanities Research Institute's Steering Committee, uh, who will be our moderator tonight and who will introduce our speakers. So please, welcome. Me. Thank you, Scott, and thank you to all of our panelists for agreeing to participate, who I know are in later time zones. so. Thank you for sticking with us. And of course, to all of you out there um, tuning in in some form or another, I'm just gonna do a a brief introduction to our panelists and then I'll let them each talk for um, a couple minutes more about how their work intersects with our theme tonight. Um, So um, first we have Michael Christopher Lowe, who is an assistant professor of history at Iowa State University and he is the author of Imperial Mecca, or um, Ottoman Arabia in the Indian Ocean, which is due out from Columbia University Press in September, exciting. Um, Next, we have Elise Mitchell, who's a PhD candidate in history at New York University, and her work focuses on slavery and medicine from about 1500 to 1800. She is the author of a recent piece on perhaps what what earlier pandemics can teach us about our current crisis that appeared in the Atlantic Magazine. Um, And um, third up, we have Jacob Steer Williams, who's an associate professor of history at the College of Charleston. He specializes in the history of science, medicine, disease and is working on um, a book that examines scientific attitudes and cultural constructions of um, typhoid fever in the 19th century. And he's also um, an editor of the, the Journal of the Journal of the History of Medicine and Allied Sciences. So I will um, hand it over to them to offer kind of a, a brief, uh, perhaps a little bit more of an overview of their work and how it intersects with our theme here tonight. And we can just go in the order that I introduced you, I suppose, if that works.
2: Thank you for having us. Um, So my work uh, centers around cholera and plague in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, As an Ottomanist and an Arabist, um, I focused on primarily the pilgrimage to Mecca, um, sort of looking at the ways in which sort of the ecological fallout of British colonialism in India and the Indian Ocean uh, impacted the Ottoman Empire and the broader Middle East, and of course, uh, really spilled over and became a truly global issue uh, in the late 19th century. Also, my work has sort of spun off uh, in a couple of different directions, but most notably, I've written some about desalination technology, which started to be used as one of the solutions um, to this problem related to the Hajj. Of course, um, today in the Arabian Peninsula, desalinated water uh, is sort of uh, uh, of the the wellspring of life in the peninsula. So that's sort of the second uh, project that sprang out of this uh, initial pandemic uh, work that I was doing.
0: Okay. Thank you so much for having us. Um, So yeah, my work focuses most broadly on um, the intersections of slavery and the slave trade and medicine in the early modern Americas. But my current project focuses on smallpox and slavery, specifically enslaved Africans' experiences of um, different public health interventions geared towards curtailing smallpox in the slave trade, such as quarantines. Um, and also their experiences with smallpox inoculation, both with indigenous West African practices of smallpox inoculation in West Africa and in different parts of the Caribbean. Um, Because the slave trade took enslaved people to a variety of different locations in the Americas and sort of spread folks of different ethnic backgrounds across the region. I look across British, French, Spanish, and Portuguese um, territories to sort of put together what um, the, what the implications of different public health interventions and the implications of different smallpox epidemics were in the period before 1800, so before the invention and promulgation of the smallpox vaccine.
3: Thanks, y'all. So I've spent um, probably about a decade researching the history of typhoid fever and the rise of epidemiology in in Victorian Britain. Um, and, And typhoid's been this really interesting disease for me to look at because it's often been seen alongside cholera in the rise of public health and municipal sanitation. And what's so interesting in my research that I found about typhoid is the role of British colonialism in the process. So in the the earlier period of the the mid-Victorian era, typhoid was almost seen as inherently a, a European or a British disease, a disease that indigenous peoples in India and in Africa couldn't get. Um, And by the end of the 19th century, it was seen as a disease for which colonialism brought across the world. So it was seen as a global disease vis-a-vis these larger kind of colonial processes. So I have a book on typhoid that's coming out um, a little bit later than Chris's. It's coming out in November with the University of Rochester press called the Filth Disease. Um, And my second project that I'm working on right now is on bubonic plague um, in late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, British colonial areas of India and South Africa. So a lot of a lot of great intersections here I think between the three of us.
1: Yeah, I agree. So, um, a couple of you have kind of started to touch upon this, but just as a broad opening question, I thought I'd ask um, You know, what parallels do you see between your own time period? Of course being careful historians as we all are but um between you know your own time period that you study and maybe some things that are happening today whoever whoever wants to go first so
2: i'll i'll jump in and and take a stab at that one um one of the things that has struck me in the last few weeks is really the parallel about testing um and for cholera uh, really, cholera leaps onto the global stage. I mean, you start to get outbreaks moving from uh, the endemic sink uh, of the Ganges Delta uh, in the 1820s and 1830s, but certainly by the 1860s, cholera is on the, the sort of global radar and is impacting uh, not only India, the Middle East, Europe, but also making its way all the way uh, to, to North America. And one of the things that I think is interesting is really from uh, this, these early periods, 1830s through the 1880s and 90s, is that everyone was flying blind. No one understood the bacteriology, no one understood uh, the etiology, really how cholera works and, and spreads. And so for the better part of you know three decades uh, in the sort of middle part of, of my work, uh, you have a British empire that obstinately denies that India is the source of cholera. Um, and you have a sort of beleaguered Ottoman Empire who's really following the best medical advice, uh, the sort of current medical advice of Europe and following the developments of people like Robert Koch and Pasteur. Um, and yet they're being blamed uh, by the British Empire saying that uh, you know Mecca is the font of, of cholera and not India. And so this blame game internationally and lack of clarity about how the disease works is strikingly similar to me.
0: Yeah, I'll jump in next. I'm gonna say um, in a similar way, the f- the flying blind aspect is, is pretty similar to some of the early outbreaks that I study. Um, around 500 years ago, the Americas saw their first documented smallpox outbreak um, in the 1519, early 1520s. And at that time, smallpox was a novel virus similar to how the coronavirus is a novel virus globally. Um, so folks, Native Americans had a variety of different um, medical practices that might have been helpful for the disease, but they didn't have experience with that disease specifically prior to this. So I think the sort of sense of being in uncharted territory and not having a vaccine or any kind of a medical practice or having to sort of figure out along the way the medical practices that would be most effective is one similarity. But then the other one, um, which, is, which is heartbreaking, but also expected is the demographics of who's being most affected by this disease. Um, The racial demographics around black people dying of the disease at much higher rates than other communities and being affected much more so as well as the um, devastating impact that it's having on Native American communities in the US, as well as abroad. um, Is very, very, very similar to the outbreaks that I study and that has everything to do with the way that um, labor is performed in America, the way that um, the kind of socioeconomic disparities that we have, as well as the under-resourcing of different communities that put them at further risk for contracting this disease. Um, and the fact that there was not a conscious effort early on to um, make any kind of public health interventions that were directed at preserving the lives of native and, um, and black people in the US. And then now, and like looking at that, in the past where a lot of times black and native people were paying the costs of mitigation in different colonial public health strategies. There's definitely a lineage there um, that's, worth, that's worth acknowledging. So I would say that those are probably the two greatest similarities that I've seen.
3: Definitely, thank, thank you both so much. And yeah, just to, just to dovetail with uh, you know, how my work, work intersects with, with a couple of the themes that, that we just heard from. So one, I think this, this question um, that Chris brought up about internationalism um, is super interesting in how it parallels, you know, there's, there's this interesting phenomenon that happens um, from 1851 of the rise of these international sanitary conferences of European nations plus Turkey um, coming together, um, starting in 1851 in Paris, trying to think about the spread of cholera, the spread of yellow fever and the spread of plague and, and thinking about measures of quarantine and, and diplomacy and, and global politics. Um, And what's so fascinating if you you look at those international sanitary conferences is one, how much uncertainty there is, like Chris mentioned. Um, And two, that even when they vote on issues and try to come up with global regulations, once those diplomats and the doctors come back to their home countries, they don't often get followed or put in place anyway, right? So there's this super interesting, I think, acknowledgement from the mid 19th century that internationalism as a kind of response to pandemics as something that is a positive sort of public good, but then putting into practice is is constrained um, from that period, right? It's constrained by local politics. It's constrained by issues of race and labor, um, certainly. Um, so that's sort of definitely one theme that, I've, that I see resonate in my work too. You know, in this other one um, that, that Elise brings up about labor um, and the, the uneven ways in which anti-pandemic practices um, get spread out unevenly, uh, particularly via race. Um, I mean that's something that's the focus of my current project on bubonic plague in South Africa and in India, and if you look at the anti-plague practices in those colonial locations, what you see is indigenous peoples in India and in Africa being blamed, especially for the spread of plague, as being har- harbingers of plague, but then also doing the anti-plague work, like the everyday work of using disinfectants, of of tearing down houses, of Using dangerous chemicals, um, and so you, see, I think you see that um, being parallel today too. Of, of in spite of the fact that we have these stay in, or stay in, you know, shelter in place, quarantine measures, there's real on the ground labor happening right now too, and that's affecting people disproportionately in this country and around the world.
1: I want to pick off, pick up off on this note of like how how diseases are fought or are you know methods effective or otherwise at combating disease that you've introduced with this sort of um you know 1851 on meeting um are there other what you know what other ideas are circulating in your in your projects about how to fight disease or you know where diseases come from
2: One of the things that emerges in my work is, uh, again, sort of uh, uh, Jacob mentions internationalism. um, And one of the big themes in my work uh, is that the Ottoman Empire takes internationalism quite seriously. They want to be viewed as a a sort of power player in Europe and be taken uh, seriously and, and have their sovereignty protected under international law. And so they really sort of try to play the game of internationalism. Whereas the British are sort of the, the, uh, the big bad in this story and sort of a weak internationalism can't restrain British free trade, which refuses to be caught in any international legal agreements, uh, which force them to quarantine or force them to restrict uh, labor mobility or pilgrimage mobility um, in my case. And this becomes a real uh, stumbling block uh, for effective controls. There were certainly times when it would have been uh, appropriate to restrict uh, uh, mobility, uh, whether it be European traders, uh, Muslim pilgrims uh, or labor migrants, um, but either for free trade or for fear of backlash among their uh, subjects, they often refuse to do so.
0: Um, So gosh, that's such a tough question for um, an early modernist to unpack because people had very different ideas about what diseases were and and what their significance was in the period that I study than we do now. Um, So for smallpox, um, I guess I'd say like the most obvious question that I often get get asked is um, whether or not the disease was racialized. And for the period that I study, it wasn't. Um, Europeans and Africans, um, as well as native people, all recognize that this was a disease that almost anyone could contract, especially if they hadn't had it before um, from pretty early on. And of course, folks from different cultural backgrounds ascribe different meanings to it. Sometimes those meanings had spiritual or religious connotations. Sometimes they had even geopolitical connotations or trade connotations. Um, for enslaved Africans in West Africa as well as in the Americas, many of many of them um, practiced smallpox inoculation or a sort of rudimentary form of, of immunization that was Um, involved taking pus from one person's pustule and putting it it, into an incision on another person, um, specifically usually performed on children. Um, And for Europeans, Western Europeans were not really familiar with any form of immunization practices until the early 18th century. Um, It was a big part of Eastern medicine in East Asia, as well as in um, Turkey, much of the Near East, much of the Middle East. Um, And in the early 18th century, Um, it sort of got an uneven adoption. Folks in the Americas were a little bit more um, willing to experiment with it and adopt it pretty quickly in the early 18th century, I think in part, in large part because of their contact with um, West Africans and their familiarity with the practice. Um, But Western Europeans didn't really um, sanction the practice until the mid 18th century, and then it was in use much more. Prior to that, they tended to rely on um, smallpox quarantines, which, I mean, similar to the social distancing practices that we're, that we're doing now, still leave, partic- leave anyone who's infected in a very vulnerable position and also doesn't really do anything to prevent um, the disease from spreading if it, al- if it already is. Um, and so, I mean, one of the, a big part of my work is focusing on maritime quarantines and quarantining of enslaved Africans in the slave trade um, at different coastal ports throughout the Caribbean and the Americas. Um, so I would say that, I guess maybe that summarizes to answer the question.
3: And that's, that's really interesting too, Elise, that, that, you, that you talk about the ways in which, you know, race impacted um, discussions about, about, about slavery, right? And smallpox, but at the same time, like there's yellow fever happening here too, which is pathologized and racialized in very different ways than smallpox, right? So I think that's, that's super interesting to bring up. Um, If I try to think through what's what's happening in the late 19th century um, with bubonic plague, for example, in in India and in South Africa, and you think about some of these questions of differential blame, xenophobia, and and, and labor, um, I'm going to try to share screen an image here to see if that um, looks like it's disabled, Um, so that may not work. Um, One of the things that's so fascinating to me, I found this um, this photograph from 1898 that is, it depicts, um, it's from a, a Kamari dipping station in Karachi and it um, was this port city um, central to the British Empire in this period and it's, an, it's a photograph that shows human dipping, British um, plague officials dipping indigenous Indians in a vat of carbolic acid. Um, and. What's so interesting to me about this example that I ex- explore that was happening um, both in India and in South Africa in this time, um, is this live now, is this working? Great, okay. Um, it's this really harrowing photograph. Um, it's the only photograph that I, that I found that existed of, of human dipping um, in, in in this dangerous vat of carbolic acid, which was known at the time to burn the skin, right? So here's this moment where where there, We're in the middle of a pandemic in the late 19th century bubonic plague is sweeping across the globe. Um, It's disrupting daily life and trade and and everything in between. And there's also this new bacteriological knowledge. There's knowledge about the bacillus um, and there's knowledge about the, the the rat flea human zoonotic connection and yet the response is this heavily racialized response to blame Indians and Africans for spreading the disease and to usher in these very heavy handed imperial colonial public health type of practices. So, you know, I think like, if you think about some of the visuals that are happening here too, I think that helps to sort of nuance and contextualize um, the sort of labor practices and the differential immunity questions that are at that least says are super long standing in this period.
1: Thanks, that's, Thanks. yeah.
2: Sorry. It's, I mean, it's interesting to piggyback on this stratification issue um, with plague and certainly uh, cholera and plague were running concurrently um, uh, during this period. But um, all of these international sanitary conferences, they tended to enshrine European mobility uh, and continue to protect uh, trade and uh, European troop movements um, and tended to demonize uh, labor migrants from places like China and India, or uh, Muslim and Hindu pilgrims coming from India and the Indian Ocean. Uh, And so we see this sort of stratification. This is one of the worries that I have about this idea of immunity passports, um, is that we end up not really with uh, uh, something that covers or really thinks carefully about immunity, but instead just is another way to practice uh, these racial inequalities.
0: Yeah, if I can just jump in really quick and say, I think that pointing out the fact that these are ways that sort of enshrine European mobility is really important because part of the reason why um, European colonial officials were creating different kinds of maritime quarantine policies was so that the slave trade could continue, You know, because the, the perfect solution to stopping smallpox outbreaks on slave ships is to stop enslaving people, but that's not what anybody was interested in at the time. Um, And so, you know, sort of developing these different kinds of public health policies that allow for things to continue along a certain quote unquote normal in the way that people are kind of trying to figure out how we can get back to a normal before that we realize now, at least that the, that the that our current pandemic has laid bare was not necessarily that sustainable um, or, or safe for everyone in the first place.
1: yeah i'm I'm glad that this question of immunity came up because it's obviously something people are talking about so much now. like how do you prove immunity is is you know does having the disease even confer immunity um so it's interesting to see and not perhaps unsurprising that those were um, concerns in in previous eras as well. Um, um, another thing I wanted to ask you all about was. Kind of the broader effects that pandemics have had Elise, in your um, piece that you published recently you talk a lot about how you know the pandemic is one thing but it's like some of the other knock-on effects of pandemics that are actually more detrimental to societies and certainly um, in our own time there's a question of you know what are the economic effects or what are the other effects so I was wondering if y'all could just speak to that um, in your own era. Okay,
0: I, I couldn't jump. Oh, sorry, uh, Michael, if you wanted to go. No. Okay, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, so yeah, in the piece I talk about how um, for the smallpox outbreaks that I study, if they spiraled out into epi- epidemics, oftentimes, um, they were preceded by famine. Um, because, you know, so many of the people who were part of the laboring classes, whether they were enslaved or other bound laborers, were often the ones who were most impacted. So, were either unable to work or they many too many people perished for them to be able to work. A lot of times, densely populated urban spaces that were devastated by outbreaks. Um, there are several examples that I've read where they say, where like the colonial officials report that some households were left without a living soul. So massive depopulation and then an end to different aspects of, of social and cultural and spiritual life w- was often a big thing. I mean, since I'm working in the early modern period and focus a lot on, Um, Iberian and and French colonization, you know, the Catholic Church is a big part of that. So a lot of times people were lamenting the end of religious ceremonies, the fact that people died or were buried without having access to last rites and things like that. Um, And they were also incredibly disruptive to trade and commerce, um, you know, and all manner of trade and commerce. And so for, in some cases, the small island territories that I study or some more remote areas were pretty dependent on getting particular supplies from other places and those supply chains would get cut off. Um, And that would mean that people had to go without different foodstuffs or goods for a long period of time. Um, So I would say that those are probably some of the biggest impacts in addition to like the variety of like emotional things that come along with the massive loss of.
2: Just to sort of try and think about uh, pandemics as sort of swirl of comorbidities. I mean, a lot of uh, what I think about for uh, Ottoman Arabia, uh, Mecca, the Ottoman Empire, larger Muslim world, is that British India is sort of, again, it's a a swirl of conditions that are conducive to not just cholera outbreaks, plague, uh, malaria, Famine, of course, and that the sort of synergy between these things uh, sort of helps to further uh, the the possibility uh, of of further outbreaks. The other thing I would say is sort of uh, uh, sort of piggybacking on some of the uh, blame games that are uh, afoot at the moment, and sort of playing with statistics. One example that I like to use um, is the British uh, like to play down cholera deaths, and they would often record cholera deaths as famine diarrhea, Um, so taking one crisis and blaming it so that it didn't draw sort of larger international attention to the the bigger problem. Um, But we do, we see these sort of ways in which there's a sort of cascade uh, of consequences, water safety, water security in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, tighter border controls, uh, new experimentations with uh, passport controls, which of course were racialized, Uh, as well so we get some of the sort of infrastructures of travel regulation mobility that we tend to i think as americans think of you know you have your passport and it provides you freedom to to go where you want well in point of fact usually passports were restrictive measures Um, and i think it's important for us to recognize their origins that
3: that's right that's a that's a really important work that emerges out of my research too with with plague in india and in south africa and i think you know, it's how I see this, and in particular with, with my two projects on typhoid um, and, on, and on bubonic plague. Is you know, on the one hand, this story of typhoid in the in the course of the second half of the 19th century is one of the rise of of a kind of global epidemiology, of of a kind of commitment on the part of governments to hire people to study epidemics full time, right? And I think, like in a long historical arc, we can see that as an important kind of, of, of moniker, right? Um, and at the same time, I think how those public health practices were happening on the ground, particularly in colonial locations in the 19th century, um, was very uneven, right? So while we might say the rise of, of, of global epidemiology is a positive good for society, and I think that's certainly something we should acknowledge. On the other hand, you know what happens in the case of, of Cape Town, for example, I was in Cape Town last summer, and. And I, what I found there was 200 huge archival boxes that hadn't been opened since 1910. Um, and they were all plague files. Um, and what's so interesting is uh, British officials, when plague starts hitting Cape Town, they, they literally clear with police officers and soldiers, European, um, they clear Cape Town um, completely. They force the indigenous um, people that were living there out of the city. Um, and they total re- totally remake that urban um landscape and so there's this i mean chris you can speak to this too there and and so can you elise i think there's this there's this fear of indigenous peoples that europeans have in the 18th and 19th century but there's also this fear of indigenous landscapes and environments and so i think the the colonial project you know in this period was one of 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 racializing disease, but also of thinking about landscapes in new ways. And so, you know, I think there's, you know, there's certainly this interesting mix between what public health is doing on the ground, what public health is doing in ideologically speaking, and then what it's doing on the ground.
2: I mean, this is an interesting thing that you bring up, uh, this sort of idea of an environmental Orientalism. Um, And one of the things that comes out in my work is that this sort of modernizing state in Istanbul starts to view the Arabian Peninsula and its frontiers as a defective environment, right? That there's something about the Bedouins, uh, the uh, mobility of pilgrims, but also the defectiveness of the desert environment that is particularly dangerous and needs to be rectified. And so you start to get uh, sort of more emphasis on infrastructural Uh, projects for water and sanitation, uh, etc. And, but you do, there's a sort of streak of uh, a sort of European Orientalism that even the Ottomans start to imbibe as well.
0: Yeah, I think the point about landscapes is really important. Um, Because, like, I mean, in the Caribbean, you know, you have very, from very early on, people talking about this as this disease-ridden landscape, this place where it promotes unhealth and all of these things. But smallpox never gets Um, wrapped up in those same discourses because Europeans from pretty early on recognized that it was a disease that happened because of human-to-human contact that was common in cold climates and things so it's sort of an outlier from diseases like yellow fever and malaria um, in that way and because of the fact that there were so many um, horrible outbreaks in Europe as well um, often contemporaneously with ones that were affecting the Caribbean and different parts of like coastal West Africa and West Central Africa Um, it doesn't, it, doesn't quite get, it doesn't quite ever get racialized in the same way or attributed to a specific group. Like from, from pretty early on in the 17th century, Europeans recognized that this was a disease that was um, fomented by like keeping people in close quarters, keeping people in unsanitary conditions, regardless of what climate or environment they were in. Um, so, you- Thanks
1: um, for all of that. And we have some amazing questions from our audience, so I'll turn to some of those. We have um, a couple different questions that touch upon the issue of um, civil liberties v- versus, perhaps, or not, um, public health. Um, so we have a question from Mary Berman who asks about, um, you know, was that a factor in past pandemics, the sort of Clash between people advocating for civil liberties and those focused on public health. And there's also a question from Jason McConnell who asked about the use of quarantine as potentially um, a convenient tool by which to maltreat um, minority groups or other, um, you know, people considered undesirable in the population. So I'll, I'll kind of lump those together and um, ask if, if you see that in your own, uh,
0: in your own work.
2: I'll try and tackle this question uh, maybe a little bit indirectly. Um, Just thinking about the difference between metropolitan societies uh, in Europe and uh, the sort of colonial territories that they controlled, uh, civil liberties as we might think of it uh, were not really existent in the same way. Um, But one of the things that crops up in my work uh, is the sort of deal that is struck Um, after the Great Rebellion in 1857-58 in India. And one of the sort of key ideas that is enshrined uh, is that uh, missionary activity would be frowned upon and that Hindus and Muslims and other uh, religious groups in India would be given uh, religious freedom, uh, however narrowly defined, right? So this this idea made it very difficult to restrict uh, mobility uh, that had anything to do uh, with religion, in my case, writing about the pilgrimage to Mecca, the Hajj, um, the colonial state was terrified uh, to do anything that would be seen by the uh, sort of Muslim uh, population uh, as a sort of uh, reneging on this basic agreement. And so uh, this was sort of the basic, if you will, civil liberties uh, question uh, of the day. And it really hamstrung the state from acting. Uh, effectively uh, to control the pandemic.
0: Yeah, so civil liberties. um, Well, I mean, when you're talking about enslaved people, like liberty isn't really something that's much of a a factor in that instance. Um, So, you know, enslaved people, because of the fact that they were enslaved, were already vulnerable to being surveilled at a higher rate, um, to constricted mobility, to all manner of different forms of violence as well, Um, of course, because that's a cornerstone of slavery, but um, in terms of whether or not public health practices were an infringement on that, like, I mean, we have to remember that our sense of civil liberties here in the the US is um, a pretty broad conceptualization that's something that um, is culturally constructed here and legally constructed here. For the period that I study, um, and I'll focus on free people because that's a, it's a bit easier to answer that question because with enslaved people it's just not on the table. Um, for folks who were in West Africa, they had pretty comprehensive public health responses to smallpox outbreaks from the little bit of documentation that we have. And they, it included like mass inoculation, in some cases it included mass inoculations of children and included mandatory quarantines or things similar to what we consider social distancing today. Um, or it included like having some type of proof either a scar of inoculation or proof that you had that you had been inoculated before you could go trading at great distances and things like that Um, and that had to do with the fact that West Africans understood um, diseases as being like a sort of collective uh, as having a more collective impact and so if you're working within that framework already then the kinds of privacy infringements that we imagine public health having today don't necessarily apply because you're already prioritizing the collective. Um, whereas from pretty early on, especially in the Enlightenment, European, Western Europeans especially had a pretty um, individualized concept of the body, an individualized concept of diseases where these are things that are affecting this one person or affecting a group of individuals. And with that, then you run into problems when you try to uh, get people to adopt something like inoculation, which might be dangerous for one person, but on the whole might be beneficial for everyone. Um, Or things like different kinds of quarantines and other things too, where folks want to be the exception to the rule, which I think has to do with some of those fundamental differences in how folks were conceiving of diseases. And then in terms of quarantines, were they, were they exploited? Absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, some of the examples that I have include um, enslaved women becoming victims of sexual violence um, during quarantines. People would use quarantine sometimes or use fabricate smallpox epidemics as um, an excuse to throw rebellious enslaved people overboard during voyages. Like, I mean, many of the descriptions are really, are really terrifying. So, of of course, um, European enslavers often use these Um, quarantines as opportunities to exploit enslaved people further Um, and I mean the impact of sort of sending folks to these different places um, over and over again for, for sometimes cyclical quarantines meant that it was incredibly disorienting for enslaved people which whether wittingly or unwittingly definitely contributed to the kind of like practices of mastery that folks were trying to inscribe in the Caribbean in the early modern period.
3: Yeah, I see a lot of the same dovetailing um, in my research too. So, you know, um, on this issue that Elise brings up, I too have seen, you know, when British colonial officials in 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 in, in the Cape Colony, they remove indigenous Africans to these camps. They're they're just these makeshift camps um, where they're forced to live. Um, they're thrown out of their houses in in more urban, urban centers. Um, their houses are destroyed, their belongings are destroyed, their bodies physically are are disinfected with with chemicals, chemicals that are imported from Europe, um, which is sort of interesting kind of technology transfer of colonialism as well. Um, Also seen um, in in, in the archival records there, numerous instances of British officials raping indigenous women in these camps, um, and other sorts of infringements upon upon the body of colonized people in very overt and direct ways, right? the other issue, um, I think what's interesting here is, is how much pushback there was too, um, that I see in the records of uh, requests by indigenous Africans for the unequal treatment that they, that they were um, being had through, you know, through train travel, through um, their belongings being destroyed. I mean, there's petition after petition after petition that show up in the, in the plague records of South Africa that show a kind of resistance to these measures as well. Um, the other, measure, the other uh, question uh, that was asked here um, you know about civil liberties is really interesting um, with how it relates to my work on typhoid fever. You know, some of the audience will, will undoubtedly know, you know one of the classic cases in the history of public health is typhoid Mary in early 20th century America, right? And what's so fascinating to me after having studied um, typhoid for you know, over a decade is how uh, Mary Malone wasn't the first asymptomatic carrier of typhoid. Um, she wasn't even the first recognized um, there's this long history stretching back to the mid 19th century of health officials trying to locate what they called the index case um, for the, you know, a, a, an individual who started a, an epidemic um, and oftentimes that was um, people that were already socially maligned um, in Europe um, in European locations or, or in colonial locations. So, you know, there's this longer historical arc here of infringement on civil liberties that's happening too.
1: Um, I'll go to another question from the audience, um, maybe also bundling a couple questions together so we get through all these really excellent questions. Um, So first we have um, a question from Keith Plymers about, um, it says in 1794, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones were two Black Philadelphians who helped lead their community's response to the outbreak, wrote to try to combat ideas about black immunity, which is something that came up with the coronavirus as well. Um, And he's wondering if the panelists can comment on ideas about racialized immunities or vulnerability. And I also going to pair that with this question from Donald O'Toole about um, an enslaved person um, who helped, um, who was owned, I appreciate the air quotes, by Cotton Mather. and who helped um, explain, you know, how deliberate infection with smallpox could um, help increase, um, you know, resistance to that, and whether whether there was an awareness that that was, um, you know, that that knowledge came from an enslaved person. And personally, I'm interested in indigenous and African knowledge generally. So, um, so I'll kind of let you two, let you three um, answer those two together.
0: Um, okay so my sense from those questions is that they're about like how um, I guess with those examples of how, how free and enslaved um, Africans in the Americas were responding to these outbreaks um, and I, I can start with the one around Cotton Mather first so um, Cotton Mather called that enslaved man when Simus, he was a member of a group that the English called the Koromati, but it's mainly Akan speaking people from the um, Gold Coast area. So it's now Ghana. Um, And he wasn't the only person to tell Europeans about West African forms of smallpox inoculation. Um, There are documents that might even predate that one of um, free people of African descent and also people of European descent in places like Saint-Domingue, what's now Haiti, describing being inoculated by West Africans who um, were familiar with the practice and continued the practice in the Americas. Um, There are a few examples of folks from other parts of the Caribbean, Jamaica, um, if I'm remembering correctly Barbados, but I'm not quite sure on that one, practicing smallpox inoculation in the Americas. And then in terms of French and English people who um, traveled to West Africa, they cited people practicing smallpox inoculation. It was almost as common as circumcision in a lot of West Africa. So in places like Senegal, all along the Gambia River, um, all along the Sierra Leone River, um, many, many people from that part of West Africa. Now, we don't have that much We don't have early documentation saying that people from West Central Africa, what's now Angola, that area had this form of practice, but they had other public health responses um, to smallpox. In terms of the differential immunity, um, Europeans didn't believe that Africans were more immune to smallpox than anyone else, but they did believe that their bodies were somehow hardier um, and somehow more resistant to diseases and therefore able to be subjected to harsh labor or be able to sub- be subjected to harsh smallpox experiments. Um, there's a few folks, John Quire um, is, is one of the more notorious ones who, um, Um, Did some pretty some pretty horrible experiments on enslaved Africans with um, combining smallpox inoculation and a variety of purgatives and things in the late 18th century. Um, So because of because they had this belief that Africans could somehow withstand harsher treatments or um, um, Would experience a less severe form of the disease. They didn't give them the same quality of care that they provided Europeans Um, and once Um, Europeans adopt formally adopted smallpox inoculation they were willing to inoculate um, enslaved Africans who were in physical conditions that they would have decided they wouldn't inoculate a European person under so if they already had another disease if they if it was someone who was pregnant if it was someone who um, was a very young infant things like that um, and enslaved people, you know, there are a number of examples. Um, Sasha Turner, a historian of, of um, reproductive medicine in, in Jamaica, has a really good book, Contested Bodies, where she talks about instances where enslaved mothers um, tried to withhold their children from being inoculated because they were too young. Um, and then you also have examples of, um, people of African descent in places like Venezuela, where they continue to practice smallpox inoculation despite the Spanish colonial government's attempts to regulate the practice in the 1770s. Um, you have a few European observers who say we've seen inoculation practice amongst these like free people of color without the presence of any physician. So. Um, folks were definitely doing things um, to try to mitigate the disease. And I mean, once you get into the 19th century, because there's a much more dense um, documentary record and far more free people of African descent, you have a a lot more examples of people, especially folks who were free in, in Northern, um states writing to advocate for better treatment of enslaved Africans in the south and access to small to the smallpox vaccine once that came out as well but access under conditions that would actually promote health not under conditions that might cause them to die or have a adverse reaction to it does anyone
1: else want to i
3: can jump in here too a little bit um because I think one of the things that's really interesting, if you, if you take this like long view of this, you know, from this period that Elise is talking about in the in the 18th and the early 19th century, I think there's this real fear looking back on that and using that historical knowledge today and trying to understand it and, and just like black boxing that, pigeonholing that into this older era where there wasn't modern scientific understandings of disease in the body. But if you, if you speed it up into the late 19th, early 20th century when there's uh, this new science of bacteriology, this new knowledge of the micro, uh, microorganism, you know, ro- microorganisms role in, in spreading disease as a causative organism, there's still, in some ways, there's a sort of redoubling of, of ideas of differential immunity, right? There's, there's you know, in spite of uh, new bacteriology and epidemiology, these racial theories persist, and in some ways, they become even stronger. Um, so, you know, health officials in the early 20th century can 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 can, can use tests to determine who uh, has a disease or who doesn't have a disease, right? Of bacteria bacterial origin, at least. Um, but at the same time, they're still different. They're still thinking about uh, 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 racialized ideas about who is more susceptible, right? Or who is. Uh, who is that, who who is spreading disease?
2: I mean, I think that this is interesting uh, what Jacob brings up, this idea that we can't compare the present with say the early 19th century or late 19th century. Um, In many respects, these sort of racial ideologies rear their heads uh, in in these moments, right? Um, My colleague from Columbia now at uh, Villanova, Andy Liu, Um, has written some wonderful things uh, in the popular press recently uh, about a sort of fear of East Asians, um, ways in which the West refused to um, essentially look at the examples that were put forward by uh, perhaps China's a little bit problematic, but especially South Korea, Japan, Singapore, and refused to really follow the examples of social distancing and particularly mask wearing uh, early on in the pandemic. Um, And I think that this is certainly related to racial hierarchies, right? Um, Thinking that there's some sort of reified, um, obedient uh, Asian population, um, and these sort of stereotypes get trotted out to say, well, no, the West will not follow these examples. um, And there's really nothing to learn here when in fact uh, there certainly was, and now we're paying the the price. Yeah,
1: definitely. So the next question comes from Renee who asked about um, zoonotic diseases so diseases that pass from you know animals to people um, and what basically like the environmental aspect of the you know both uh, COVID-19 and other zoonotic diseases and um, you know what you your thoughts or um, whether this is a concern in your own time but you know over the kind of putting too much pressure on natural resources, depletion, and how that leads to pandemic diseases, if any of you have thoughts on that.
2: So I teach a global environmental history course and zoonotic spillovers is certainly a big part of what we do in that course. Um, And obviously this this semester has been sort of a case study That for my students Uh, early on in the semester, we talked about that uh, as the pandemic was unfolding. And I think that my points were brought home maybe a little little too well this semester. Um, But I think it's interesting, um, there are ways in which whether we're talking about SARS and the civet uh, or COVID and bats or MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome and camels, um, animals have become scapegoats, right? Wet markets have become scapegoats. when in fact, this is a, a, a sign and symptom of the Anthropocene or the Great Acceleration or the Capitalocene, depending on your uh, sort of ideological perspective on how you want to think about uh, climate change and our current predicament, um, but this is fundamentally a human problem of uh, sort of using cheap resources, cheap land and encroaching on Uh, animal, previously undisturbed animal habitats, or industrializing our interactions uh, with animals, and sort of placing human populations, industrial animal husbandry, uh, farming practices, and wild animal populations in very close proximity. Um, But this is fundamentally a human problem, not an animal problem, uh, regardless of what the popular press might say.
3: Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and I think um, just to jump off that a little bit, you know, if you if you take this moment, um, at least with the story of in the history of bubonic plague when when the rat was first um, acknowledged to play some kind of role in the spread of plague in the late 1890s. Um, some of the, the, the early epidemiological maps that British colonial officials produce in South Africa um, are, are not the sort of classic John Snow cholera spot maps. Of either cases of sick individuals or dead individuals, they're actually maps that are epidemiological spot maps of rats. So they they're they're mapping rats on the urban landscape to try to understand the spread of, of the animal because it, as you said, Chris, becomes this kind of scapegoat for for a whole set of I think issues, one of which um, is is race, right? Because those maps, they mapped literally onto that urban landscape, but they also mapped onto uh, the houses of, of indigenous peoples. Um, and I think the field of, of human animal diseases um, and its history um, is, is a really burgeoning one um, right now. And one that I would highly encourage you know, anybody that's interested in that at all, um, to look at the sort of period in the late 19th, early 20th century, when there's this flourishing of, of this new kind of zoonotic research that's happening um, from people trained in bacteriology, um, that, that's really understudied.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, like this one, this one's a tough one um, for me to answer from my own research. Um, But I think, I think, like, thank you for both of your answers, Michael and Jay, because because they're helpful for me as I'm thinking about this. I mean, like the first um, vaccine, it's called a vaccine because it comes from cowpox, which is not the same as smallpox, but can produce a temporary immunity to smallpox. And that's something that was pretty familiar to different rural communities who who had close interactions with cows. But the idea around, the reason why it became effective was because it sort of was a way to control the spread of the disease and control immunity. So I think the nature of humans' contact with animals really shapes the way that those kinds of diseases can become something that's either harmful or helpful for a community. Um, And I think that that kind of gets back to the question um, that Jacob just touched on around the different kinds of like social inequities and the ways in which race intersects with this in a context where people are actually like, you know, where, where physicians and scientists are, are really invested and, and a wider society is really invested in protecting folks as they come into contact with these diseases, those diseases can lead to the production of knowledge that might produce a cure for something or produce some type of remedy. But in a context where folks are not investing in those things either because they can't or, be, or because for political or social reasons they're choosing not to, then you end up with a situation where you might have it spiral out into a pandemic. Um,
1: Yeah. And I do also uh, believe, I think we have a think and drink in the works that we'll also talk more about this specifically. So stay tuned. Um, This is a question from Karina Ike, which I love. What is the the best way or other, all the ways that um, we as historians, but also humanists generally can inform policies about public health? Kind of a tall order but if you want to just <laughs> share your thoughts we'll be- you know I mean I
3: think um I, I actually try to think about this a lot um you know both in in, in a pandemic moment like this and you know I've written a, a handful of op-eds for our newspaper in Charleston the Post and Courier and trying to you know contextualize and I have a piece that aired on CNN last week um, on, on pandemics and, and the use of disinfectants and their long history um, and I think one of the things that 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 historians and and humanists more broadly can do is to try to use our expertise to to sort of complicate some of the big narratives Um, the narratives of scientific progress um, the narratives of you know we have this problem right there's this idea out there i think in in the in the broader society that you know this sort of worked like this in the past and it can work like this now that there's this unsolvable mystery right diseases often get likened to these sort of mystery stories where there's this problem, it just it just needs the right sort of know-how to get fixed. And then it, if we just have the right scientific breakthrough, we can solve this problem. And I think, you know, any sort of story of, of the history of disease is abundantly clear that it hasn't worked that way in the past um, and that it probably won't work that way now. So I think the more we can complicate those heroic narratives, the more we can help people to try to navigate um, what are the gray areas and the more complicated areas and the the areas of inequality. You know, one of the things that I think has been so interesting for, you know, for me as a historian of, of epidemic disease is how much play um, the Spanish flu has gotten in the media um, lately as a way to try to understand the moment that we're in now. And and I totally get it. It was the last big, you know, American pandemic to happen, and this this really important global um, pandemic to happen across the world. And and I think like you know, having cities all across America quarantined in 1918 and, and some in early 1919. Provides a kind of salient lesson for us, but I also think there's been a lot of a way in which that story has been been reduced to a kind of not very complicated story, um, and a kind of heroic story that you know the kind of things that we have been talking about in the last hour I think are much more difficult to try to throw into how they easily map onto our experience right now with COVID. But I think in a way that that makes them more valuable.
2: I'd like to jump in here and and, and again sort of make a a pitch for environmental history. Um, Our current moment uh, is quite different, and I think Jacob brings up a good point, right, that these sort of one-to-one comparisons. I've seen lots of stories uh, in popular media about uh, the Spanish flu or even cholera, Um, but we're living in a quite uh, different moment, right? Uh, Certainly the 19th century we could think of it as a sort of globalization uh, 1.0, uh, with steam and telegraph uh, connectivity, but the level of connectivity, uh, the speed of travel, um, the density of our population, and all of these sort of accumulated uh, degradations of the environment that we collectively think of as the great acceleration or the Anthropocene put us in a quite different spot um, than we were in the 19th century. And I think trying to sort of piece this together And think of this really as the canary in the coal mine, as sort of one small data point in a much, much larger picture. Um, And I think that some of these 19th century comparisons don't really do service to this. I mean, I also like what Jacob was saying too, about this sort of heroic uh, 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 great man theory of medicine, right? That there's a a Dr. Fauci out there somewhere who's going to come up with the cure and save us all from this. Um, when in point of fact, these are sort of generally slow rolling uh, uh, efforts, um, and we're very likely to sort of see very similar things happening in the future. I really like, I believe it was Alfred Crosby, and I'll butcher the quote, but um, he, he said, you know, there's the 19th century, and then there's the 20th century, and we have all of these uh, wonderful a uh, falling mortality, expanding life expectancies, etc., and uh, he was asked, what happens after the 20th century? Uh, It's not the 21st century, you go back to the 19th century. Um, Those gains that we've made in some respects are illusory. Um, Antibiotics, uh, advances in bacteriology, virology, etc., they're not enough to keep pace with the changes that we're making to our wider environment. Um, and to really sort of only have a conversation about public health, I think puts us at a, a big disservice. And a second way that I'd like to maybe address this question about how we can interject ourselves into sort of, uh, the, sort of the public discourse um, is to really think about calling balls and strikes. Um, so my work on the pilgrimage to Mecca, um, I'm seeing lots of stories about the impending, you know, Hajj season is coming up in late July, Uh, early August. uh, Pilgrims have been banned from making Umrah, which is going to Mecca and Medina outside of Hajj season. Um, And Saudi Arabia has already put some quite strict controls on travel to to Mecca and Medina. Um, But one of the things that happened a couple of months ago was that the Saudis started to float kind of a trial balloon that they would ultimately have to postpone or cancel uh, the pilgrimage this year. And with that, they sort of put together a package of precedents, of previous times when for reasons of political conflict, war, or pandemic, the Hajj had been disrupted. Um, Interestingly, all of their examples come from the 7th century all the way up to the uh, invasion of Napoleon uh, in, in Egypt in 1798, and there's no mention of the 19th century. No mention of the colonial interventions with cholera and plague um, and uh, Ottoman developments of public health, and really a period in which colonial powers uh, sort of reached into the Arabian Peninsula and regulated the pilgrimage to Mecca, really the most sacred event uh, in in the faith. And so we see a a sort of um, reluctance to come to terms with that history in the sort of talking points that they put out. But interestingly, most Western observers who have run op-eds about the Hajj being postponed or its potential have taken those Saudi talking points uh, generally without, I suspect, without reading the original uh, Arabic communications and just digested all of that information without checking. And there are lots of errors um, that have been imported really into our sort of uh, understanding of this uh, in the last couple of weeks. So i spent some time uh, working on a piece to really call balls and strikes on this and sort of you know adjudicate what's going on in the press and I think that's one role where we can have an impact uh, is to come behind and really correct the record uh, when journalists uh, make some of these mistakes.
0: Um, yeah so I mean I think that, I think that humanists definitely have a role to play in this period across the board um, and I wanna echo both Michael and Jacob's comments around it's never a one-to-one comparison. Um, there's no place where that's more true than with the period that I study, which is so much earlier, when people were working with completely different ideas about how medicine and, and disease worked. Um, but I think one of the things that, that you can do with, looking, with sort of taking a long view is thinking about um, s- some different social conditions that produce epidemics that enable epidemics to spread. Um, So like for my research, I've I've had to put together a database of around 500 different smallpox outbreaks from from 15 in 19 all the way through to, to like around 1803 And the commonalities there. I mean, many of them occurred on slave ships, many of them occurred in situations where enslaved people were in very densely populated areas. So, you know, when we heard that COVID was spreading, some of my first concerns were about homeless populations, were about people who are living in urban areas, were about people who were in prisons and detention centers. Um, while that's not the same thing as, as slavery or being held in the slave ship or at a quarantine location, that kind of forced um, stasis and forced confinement is something that still endures in our world today. and you know, given that we're currently living through a pandemic, thinking about how we might build societies that don't include those kinds of forced confinement might be something worth considering at this point in time. Um, also looking at the staggering mortality statistics for the period that I study, I'm looking at, I'm seeing cases where enslaved people are dying at two, sometimes three times the rate of other groups. Native people are dying at tremendous rates because they can't get access to their normal practice, to their um, like, different forms of medicine or, or perform the kinds of healing traditions that they would because of the disruptions that colonialism caused. Um, and so in thinking about that in our time period, as we continue to sort of to push people to perform essential labor without adequate protections and other things like that. You know it it, those parallels are worth are worth exploring and worth consideration Um, and I think that humanists have a lot to lend to that conversation but I also think that we don't necessarily have to look at past pandemics or epidemics in order to understand the ways that this one might come to bear on our lives. Um, You know we still have an ongoing HIV pandemic around the world um, and you know the numbers are, are looking pretty bad for for queer communities of color in many western countries um, and I think the scholars who do work on that actually have a lot to lend in terms of these questions about infringements on civil liberties in terms of contract tracing and what that does in terms of the racial disparities, and the way that you know public health issues intersect with these other issues of labor exploitation of immigration of incarceration of housing of our housing crisis and things like that um, and I think that so like as much as i'm I'm delighted that, that you're talking to us and that you know people want want to hear from me about how supply stories and things are affected. I feel like the real people to talk to are folks who do work on HIV, and also disability studies scholars too. You know, as I trace, as I try to trace individual enslaved people's experiences with smallpox, a lot of them, you know, end up blind or end up with other physical ailments from this. We're learning that You know, COVID can cause people to have strokes or have other forms of disabilities. If you're somebody who's been extubated, you have a long road to recovery. After that, you know, you may never fully recover from that. And as this continues to spread, thinking about how, um, you know, moving forward, our policies can address those things and can do a better job of caring for folks that that have different forms of disabilities and and provide better accommodations might be something that um, it's certainly something that humanists could contribute to moving forward
1: I want to thank all of you for for lending your voices to this important conversation but definitely I think at least your point is right that there are many other people that um, we should be listening to in this in this time Um, and that's certainly something that our organization hopes to promote. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna end our time together uh, because we're at an hour a little over but I want to thank the three of you so much for um, for joining us and all of you out there who asked excellent questions many of which we did not get a chance to answer I apologize. Um, but thank you so much for coming. Um, and, um, if you want to, if you want to watch this again or catch it later, um, this will be posted on, on YouTube so you can share it with your friends later on. Thank you all. Thank you you so much for having us. Yeah. Thank you so
3: much. Thanks everyone.